This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we reflect on a conversation between Rachel Clinton Chen and Adam Young that provided some helpful notes to illuminate our journey into the world of spiritual abuse. And we're going to keep our conversation going from last week. Um, and again, I was sent a bunch of resources. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to link some of them today. Some of them were not. Some of them, when I got into them, I've, I found that there was just so much debate about the nuances and the particulars. And I know how important the world of of abuse is, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, to be a victim, to like, I, I know getting words right matters. And so in, in an effort to just make sure I'm linking good material, I'm being very like, I'm trying to be super... Um, Judicious? Is that the word I need to use, Brent? Is that the right word? I think so. Okay. I'm being super cautious about uh, uh, what we're linking. So we're going to link the there, – there is a podcast episode that was sent to me that I thought was just super great. I just gobbled up, took notes, and these notes are guiding our conversation today. So we're going to link that episode. It's from the Place We Find Ourselves podcast. Um, and like Brent said in the intro, it's a conversation between uh, Rachel Clinton Chen and Adam Young. And just – we're going to link that in the show notes. Um Rachel uh, also did a bunch of work with the Allender Center, which was also recommended to me by Leah Shrump, who we talked about in the last episode. Uh, I listened to all those episodes. I didn't think they were like as chock full of goodness, but I'm sure others will. They'll totally disagree with me. And there's a lot more of them. There's a lot more episodes there. So we're going to link that archive from the Allender Center as well uh, in our show notes so that you could do some more digging on your own. Um, but again, uh, this is just, uh, I, I listened to this podcast. I took a bunch of notes and I'm just going to kind of walk through the things they talked about in the episode, the things that stood out to me. Brent, you said last episode, you had so many questions, so I hope you remember them all. And I hope that you get to work them in to our conversation today on some level. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> all right. Uh, so first of all, we didn't even define spiritual abuse. We were just trying to like have some really general conversation really about posture, really about the need to open up. I think my closing comments in the last episode are where I kind of wanted to land the plane last time. Um, like, it's okay. Like, don't be – like, some of us have either experienced spiritual abuse and nobody's talked about it, or we, we've we been a part of spiritual abuse and we don't even know it. Uh, I mean, hopefully we don't know it. Um, or maybe we've had like this like – kind of sickening awareness. Like we're kind of like, we kind of know, like we have this hunch that maybe. And so it leads to this defensiveness because the last thing I want to learn is that I, you know, I perpetuated some of this stuff. So, um, and I want to just close our last episode with some, an invitation, like, no, don't be defensive. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Um, we're in a, we're in a good we're in an okay place. <laughs> We're creating a safe place to just explore this and to be able to be honest with ourselves, let alone other people. So walk humbly. Walk humbly. I love that. You, you dropped some mica on us in that last episode. So absolutely. Uh, walk humbly, love, mercy, and all three of these. So so act justly. This is definitely a conversation about acting justly, to be more just. If we have somehow perpetuated or committed a spiritual abuse. If we have, if we have disrupted, if we have a few episodes ago, L Fricks, L Grover Fricks talked about to make crooked. If we have sinned, if we have transgressed by making crooked, 
crooked. I said that weird, didn't I? <laughs> if we have made crooked something that is was supposed to be straight. I think the listeners live for the words that you say, Ralph. I know, I know, I know. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. But if we've participated in that, we want to be able to be honest about that. And and to act justly would mean to put that to make straight what we've made crooked. All right. That's to act justly, to love mercy. And I know this lives in me, Brent. Like I know, like I'll be going along and I'm I'm like on mission and I I like feel like I got some momentum and then somebody will show up and start talking about you know, whatever, a, a new victim story. And there's something inside me that goes, oh, can you just let us be for one moment? And that's that's not good. I, I want to be somebody who loves, who acts justly and loves mercy. Like if there's been a victim of any kind, that grabs the heart of God. He is a God, we said in, episode, in session one, he is a God that hears the cry. And he warns us that he's a God who hears the cry. And we need to hear the cry too, or else he will come and he will respond to their cry. And if it was a cry we should have responded to, we will be held accountable for that. So to act justly, to love mercy. And I know how many other pastors and leaders, especially right now, man, COVID and political stuff. And man, you're just trying to do the best job you can with your church. You're just trying to like lead people towards Jesus. And and you just hate to get one more story of some negative, uh, and it just pulls at you and you want to like, just no, I don't want to deal with it. I know what that feels like, but we have to be people that love mercy, act justly, love mercy and walk humbly. We'll never be able to have this conversation if we can't walk humbly. If if there's too much ego, if there's too much arrogance, if there's too much hubris, we'll never, we'll never, never, ever, ever be able to deal with the things that we need to deal with. We'll never be able to repent, confess. We're going to have to walk humbly. So yeah, that was a rabbit trail. That was a Brent Billings rabbit trail, everybody. Some mica brought right into your earbuds. Boom. <laughs> Done. Done. Yeah. All right. Episode over. All right. I want to get hold of Marty. <laughs> All right. So let's start with a definition. Did anyone have one last episode? What is spiritual abuse? What is spiritual abuse? This is, uh, I wrote down, uh, I, I might have gotten, I don't know if this is word for word. These are my notes from Rachel uh, Clinton Chen. Spiritual abuse, the use of spiritual power or authority to coerce, shame, or bring harm. It's an exploitation of God's authority to manipulate and control bodies, relationships, autonomy, and personhood. I'll read this again. What is spiritual abuse? It's the use of spiritual power or authority to coerce, shame, or bring harm. So it's somebody that has, whether you're a mentor or you're a pastor or you're a denominational leader or you're an elder or you're a man in a patriarchal system, or you're using any kind of spiritual authority or power. It's always about power. Spiritual abuse is always about the exploitation of power dynamics. You're using that position. You're using power and authority to coerce, shame, or bring harm. Now, listen, we're listening to this podcast. This can be complete. Nobody has to hear you. you don't, don't say this out loud. 
I want anybody that's ever been involved in ministry to consider, have you ever used a pulpit, uh, a a chance to lead a a youth group lesson, a one-on-one discipleship where you are the one facilitating, you're the mentor? Have you ever used any of these things to manipulate, to coerce, to shame? Have you ever purposely leveled a sermon at people that you knew just had the right amount of sting to it? Did you have you ever done something to bring harm to somebody? Of course we want to say no, 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 no. But if we if we stop and think about it, I think so many of us would go, oh my goodness, I think, I think I like dabble in the weird, ambiguous, fuzzy edge of this all the time. Because it's so easy to use power to do this. Uh, next line. It's an exploitation of God's authority. So it's really God's authority. God God is the only authority here that matters. It's God's authority, but somebody is using their position of power to exploit God's authority and use it to manipulate and control. And then these are four key distinctions to control bodies, whether it's sexual abuse or anything else, control bodies, control relationships. Hello, marriages to control autonomy, to take somebody's autonomy away, to take away their ability to think for themselves and their personhood, their humanity to rob them of their their full self as a human being, as a person, their autonomy, their ability to make decisions and think for themselves and, and have their own volition. And we rob them of that and take that away from them. That's spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. Okay, question. Yes. So obviously a senior pastor or, or somebody preaching, this is applicable. But how far down the stack does this go? Like, does a small group leader have the capacity to spiritually abuse someone? Oh, yes. Does... It, it, absolutely. I love where you're going. Keep going. Yeah. Does a, like, a, a, a children's ministry volunteer, like, sitting in a classroom with kids, do they have that capacity? And I, I, think, I think probably those are examples where it's like, obviously, there's somebody in, in a in an element of authority over someone else. But then what, what about like say in a small group setting, just another member of the small group, like two people who are not the facilitators of the group or the leaders of the group or whatever you want to call it, just two people in the group is their capacity there. Like where, yeah, where, there, where all can this play out? There's absolutely capacity because what about that person in the small group that has the Bible college degree? Or just has the type A personality and is really articulate and well-read. And they use that to like lord it over somebody who's not as well-read. And they make them seem. And so then they they use this fact that they're more educated. They use this fact that they're more equipped. They use the fact that they're, they have more experience. They use this fact that they're older. They have more age. Or they're, they're younger and they have more relevance and they're more informed. They, anytime you can take and use any position of authority whether it's no matter where it comes from, personality dynamics, anything, and you use it to spiritually manipulate, coerce, shame. Uh, oh my goodness, this can happen on any level. And probably the, and yet probably the worst exploitation of this is when it gets systematized by those who are in more vocational. But you are absolutely right. We have to be aware of any relationship where we have power dynamics. A parent 
any way that there's power dynamics at play and we're using God, we're exploiting God's authority to control and manipulate other people and their, their choices, their bodies, their humanity. Absolutely. Great question. Okay. So this is an example that is like, don't, don't read into what I'm talking about as far as the situation, but I grew up in a, in an environment that did not emphasize spiritual gifts whatsoever. But then one day when I was in high school, I think maybe college, uh, I found myself in a friend's home in a small group setting and somebody said they wanted to prophesy over me. And I didn't know even what that meant, um, let alone had ever experienced it before. But someone, uh, someone was like, okay. And they like put their hand on my shoulder and they're like, I see a vision of you like in this cave on the side of a cliff, blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't, I don't even know what that meant. Uh, to this day, I can't like figure out how that connects to my life. So I'm not, but whatever, like I'm not, I'm not making any commentary on spiritual gifts or prophecy specifically or anything like that. But I felt uncomfortable in the moment because I didn't know what was going on. And I wasn't sure. I didn't feel like I didn't feel ashamed that I didn't know. I was more confused. But I just I'm not like, would that be considered spiritual abuse? Like if I didn't have like some kind of negative effect for it or like, how do I, how do I look at that kind of situation? Yeah. And I think what I would like to do is stay away from saying it was, or it wasn't spiritual abuse or, cause there's going to be such a gradient scale. And what instead I would want to do is I would want to reflect on what the things that were problematic, wrong, maybe even about that interaction it has nothing to do with the theology and the spiritual gifts, like you said, but somebody, did somebody invade your, and it sounds, kind of sounds like they kind of got permission, kind of, sort of, but they didn't respect your personhood and they didn't respect your autonomy and they didn't respect your, and then depending on the tone and the posture, there's so many things that could have been wrong. And we would say using today's you know conversation today, abusive in nature. Now, again, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, man, you're going to call that spiritual abuse. Well, I don't know. I don't really know if putting the label on it is nearly as helpful as going, okay, wait a minute. Let's reflect on this and realize what's wrong about that and realize how many times do we do that? How many times do we, like, force the gospel onto, like, we're going to share the gospel with this person because that's what they need and with no respect for whether or not that's what they want, whether or not that's what they're inviting, or whether or not that's... How many times do we tell people what they need to know and they need it without any respect for what they're asking for, what they see, what they hear, what they experience? Those are the those are the really helpful because I think you're now getting into a lot more like ambiguous territory. And yet, kind of like Tor Torah teaches us, if we can see it happening in that ambiguous territory, it helps us see it happen in more clearly defined areas a little bit better. So having this conversation on all levels is super helpful. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I would say, like, I, I don't look at that uh, that experience that I had as spiritual abuse, but I'm just wondering if there's something there that I'm missing. And I think maybe maybe there were a few elements. Yep. But I think it was all done in good intentions, um, which was one of my other questions. Like, how much does the intention actually matter when in reality you're hurting someone else? Sure. Like, do the do the intentions matter or not? Yeah. And, and I, I mean, the intentions matter, but the, but they don't. Um, like uh, the, the intentions matter, and like judging the heart of a person and being able to give them some sense of, like extending a hand of grace and understanding and whatever, 
and that mutual conversation. But it, it it doesn't matter if it still causes harm and abuse. There's still something there that um, sins of omission, sins of ignorance, those kind of things. But one of the one of the examples that Rachel actually uses, Brent, she talked about purity culture. And she said purity culture was a, a movement back in the 90s. It, you know, it can be in a lot of different places, but nevertheless, uh, I think that whole movement that we were raised in, purity culture we were raised in in the 80s and 90s, it had good intentions. It was one of those examples, Brett, that had good intentions. They were trying to preserve something sacred, sexuality and marriage and all those things. They were trying to preserve something sacred, but then the way it was executed and the theology that was behind it, the theology that drove purity culture was unbelievably abusive because what it did was it stripped girls and women of their autonomy. It talked about them as objects. It stripped them of their personhood. It put everything in terms of some morality. It didn't hold men to the same standards of accountability. There were so many things that got misused and because they were coming from different things like a patriarchal perspective or whatever, was executed in a way that it caused harm. And we're now seeing that now. I mean, there's books about the harm that the purity culture has done to the the female psyche within evangelicalism. Like that's, that's a very real thing. That's not like throwing everything out into the trash or whatever. There's no conversation to be had about it. I'm just saying um, there are things that are done with good intentions. Um, They were, you know, something that was done to try to preserve something beautiful and yet was done in a poor way and ended up being abusive unintentionally but still caused harm. And now you have to figure out what it means to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. So I love that verse driving our conversation today. Well, let's see here. She says a little bit later, Rachel does in this podcast, spiritual abuse is often fueled by fear and shame. These don't just exist in our mind. Fear and shame aren't something that just like, they're not just mental abstract. They're, they're real. They're real experiences. Fear and shame are real experiences. Uh, you, you start to pick up this message, she says. It becomes really clear, whether it's stated directly or indirectly, you very clearly pick up this sense of, if you question this belief, if you question my authority, uh, you will be cut off. You'll be cut off from this community, you'll be cut off from your family, and maybe you'll even be cut off from God, depending on how your subculture and your group of fellowship works. And and Adam responds to her comments, and Adam says, you can feel this physiologically, like your body physically reacts to this sense of fear and shame. Like you recoil, like you get a pit in your stomach. You you might even get sick to your stomach. There is a physiological reaction to, I want to question this. I think there's something wrong here. But if I do, I'll be cut off. I might even be cut off from God. Like if these people are right, I'll be cut off from God and his community. And so there's. I thought those were really um, good points. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Rachel comes back. She says, the victim often never even knows it's happening. Actually, I think Adam says this. I think Adam was one that said, the victim often never knows it's happening until years after they've left the situation. Like you'll be in spiritual abuse for a decade, for 15 years, for 20 years. You'll leave and only like 10, 12, 15 years later, you'll look back through some other experience, through some other set of lenses, through some other kind of maturity and you'll look back and only then will you be able to see it. But you hardly ever see it as what it is when you're in the situation. 
uh, which I've found to be true just over and over and over again. That's why it's important to have these conversations out loud, to get us to think about it, to get us to consider it, um, how we participate in these things and how we have been affected by these things. Yeah, I was I was reading this story the other day about um, a woman who was going to a Christian counselor and she, you know, had been going there for a while and he started to sit next to her instead of across from her and then eventually started to put his arms around her and just like all this stuff. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, and then, and then, you know, absolutely like he, he crossed the line so many times and then eventually built up to the point where he was like expressing these fantasies about running away with her and all this stuff. And it's like, what? And then, and then like the way it's written, it makes it seem like this all happened over the course of like maybe a couple of months. And then she's like, no, I was with this counselor for four years. I was like, whoa. And it's right. just like, and and the whole time she's thinking like, oh, well, this seems weird, but, but he knows what he's doing. He's a, he's a trained counselor. So, right. And, and you just think like, oh, I don't have, like, I can't trust my gut here because I don't have that authority. And right. Ugh. Oh, which, which ugh. is a great, yeah. Which is a great segue to my next portion of notes here because Adam uh, is talking on the podcast and he says, he reflects on the verse. He says, one of the things that happened in his experience was people would just use this verse over and over again. You know, the verse, the heart is deceitful above all things. I think that's, a, is that a proverb a Psalm? I can't remember. Find that <laughs> verse, Brent. Tell me. It, I, yeah. I think it's Proverbs. Let me, let me find it. Oh no, it's actually Jeremiah. Okay. Jer Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Yeah, I actually have that in my notes. So there's this verse in Jeremiah that gets ripped out of context and just used over and over again. And he says, what, what it, it, it was used to teach us not to trust ourselves, but to trust in the system or in the person or in the institution that preexisted like, well, this has been here longer than we have. So trust in this. This is the tradition. Trust in that. This is the person with a degree. Trust in them. So very similar to this experience that you were reading about, you, part of what spiritual abuse does is, again, it strips you of your personhood. It strips you of your autonomy. It takes that away from you, and it uses these ideas of, like, you can't trust yourself. You, you're not going to know. You're not going to know. And so rather than to trust your – and so Rachel comes in and she says uh, – she she, she kind of responds to that and says, yes, our gut is a truth teller. It doesn't mean that it's it's perfect. It doesn't mean that it always tells like perfect truth. But we have to understand that we can trust this sense of like this isn't – there's something off. There's something wrong here. Um, she says Jesus never forces or uses his power to direct people. I, I mean there's some nuances here. Like you could like, well, what about this passage? And what about – okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jesus often, not all the time, often asks permission – or responds to a request. So Jesus never, like hardly ever just bowls into somebody's situations like, I'm here, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to do this thing for you. Usually somebody's asking Jesus to do something. Or Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? There's this respect for the person's personhood at all time, their humanity. Um, there's no posturing with Jesus. Jesus is never posturing himself against people. All kinds of other people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the whatever, like all kinds of other people will posture. Even, even outsiders will come and they'll posture themselves. They've been victims. They've been hurt. They, so even the woman at the well, she's posturing herself, but Jesus never postures himself. Like there is that one interchange with the woman at the well now that I think about it, but there's no, there's no direct posturing of Jesus against 
Uh, she says this, so to start with this line, that your heart is deceitful above all things, and to rip that verse out of context, uh, is so destructive. Because the Bible says an awful lot of things about your heart and your conscience and who we are and what we trust and how the Spirit moves within us and how the Spirit leads and guides us. So to simply use this one verse repeatedly out of context is so destructive, she says. She goes on to say, using dogma and orthodoxy to bring cohesion with tribal groups uh, and bringing healing, because we all have this desire to belong, right, Brent? Do you have have this awareness of your deep desire to belong to something? Yeah, I think so, yeah. We all have this, like, I want to be a part of something that gives me a sense of my identity. It gives me a sense of meaning and of purpose. She says, when you use dogma and quote-unquote orthodoxy, I'm not talking about real true, I'm talking about the way that we package orthodoxy to bring cohesion so that people will find belonging. And she called it she called it healing to our fragmentation because we're all broken human beings. So we all have these parts of us that are fragmented, parts of us that, that they, they're not tied together. There's too many loose ends that we're not whole. We don't have pure shalom. So there's all these things that are – and so what – what these groups do is they come and they bring they bring a sense of belonging, a spiritual, you know, a cultic spiritual abuser will come in and he'll bring a sense of identity, a cohesion. Uh, he'll heal all this fragmentation by giving you a sense of belonging and healing to all of that by making sure that you're a part of this thing that's not to be questioned. Uh, let's see here. A little bit later, Adam talks about the word power. The power is is the word that is so deeply tied to spiritual abuse power. It's about me having something you don't have, me leveraging authority, me leveraging a position, me leveraging knowledge that you don't have. Um, and, and, but there's something we said. It's power, power is the word associated, but power is not the problem because power is just a natural byproduct of all kinds of different dynamics in life. It's what we do with the power. Are we using the power to control, to manipulate, to shame, to coerce, to strip others of their humanity? Or are we using our power to like, equip people, to lift people up, to empower their humanity, to give them more? Are we using power to take away or are we using power to give away? That's what's important about spiritual power. Because spiritual power, uh, power just is a natural, you're a parent, there's a child. Uh there's natural like power dynamics and just it's to the world. You're never going to get rid of power dynamics. It's what you do with power dynamics. And it's so easy to grab the power dynamic and use it and wield it as a weapon, as a tool to leverage your agenda, your wants, your desires. And that when you do that, that's spiritual abuse. That's spiritual abuse. So power is not the problem. It's how we use the power or do we use our power to give it away, to lift others up, to open ourselves up, what do we do? What do we do with our power? On the idea of power, is it um, if someone has too much power, will they inevitably commit spiritual abuse, or 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 what? Like, I wonder. I wonder about that's a one, that's a great question. I don't know if, I, if I'm not going to come up with a quick answer here on the on the episode here. I, I want because you worded that very in a very specific way. If somebody has too much power, so if there is a thing, such a thing as too much power, I'm going to assume that there is. I haven't really thought that through. 
Um, cause I don't know if there's too much power if you use it for the good of others, but nevertheless, if you, if you have too much institutional power, too much, um, an imbalance of power, I really like this question, Brent, this is good. Uh, is it inevitable? I, 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 I think it is. And it's probably proportionate. We'll talk about this in our next episode. It's probably proportionate, um, to like the levels of accountability and the kind of accountability we have around us. So the more power that's created because of the the bigger the platform, the bigger the church, the bigger the influence, the whatever, 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 the more power that's there, the more accountability structures and systems that need to be in play so that that power is dissipated. Like it's you need to flatten out that power pyramid so that it's it's spread out across a larger, flatter body of Christ. I don't, I'm thinking out loud here. You sprung a question that's not in my notes on me, Brent. Yeah, and I'm trying not to step on my own toes because I know we were going to talk about um, some of that in the next episode. But yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking like, and maybe it's different for every person. But but it, is there a point where so, you know any given person will will eventually commit spiritual abuse without? the accountability structures around them without whatever. It's probably something to be super aware of. I love the question. Um, and again, we're not trying to give you answers here. We're not trying to tell you, you know, one way or another or this or that on the Bayma podcast. We're just simply trying to have a conversation so that we're thinking about things. Cause I don't know if we talk about this enough. I don't know if we, the fact that I've never really uh, had the question that Brent asked me, just asked me, that's a problem. Like we should, uh, we should wrestle with these things. We should talk about these things. We should be aware of these things because being aware of them will help us not commit some of these atrocities over and over again. Oh, let's see here. Uh, more notes from Adam. A theological system is an ordering of the cosmos. I think this, I feel like this is a very Reed Dent like statement here. A theological system is an ordering of the cosmos and your place in it. This is why it's so powerful, even if it's wrong. It offers us the promise of belonging and significance. So on the one hand, we have to talk about how destructive it is. On the other hand, it's no wonder that we gravitate towards it. And I love that. And Rachel responds like really positively to that in the podcast. She's like, I'm so glad that you said that. Because when you start to talk about this, what we unintentionally do is we say, man, the victim is so stupid. How could they possibly give into this? How could they possibly? But we just talked about it. You talked about it in the story that you heard. Like, you don't realize you're in it when you're in it. You can't see it for what it is. And it's no wonder Adam says that that's true because we're drawn to that sense of belonging. When somebody hands us a system, when somebody hands us a relationship, when somebody hands us uh, uh, an institution that orders the cosmos in a way that says, this is what's going on in the world, and this is where you fit, what a seductive... And that can be done well. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the story of the scriptures, an ordering of the cosmos and your place in it. But it can also be done so poorly in a way that controls and manipulates other people. Oh, uh, let's see here. Rachel says, uh, uh, I want to bring, oh man. Yeah. So she responds to that and eventually she gets really emotional and it's actually a really like a thunderous line. Cause she's like speaking through tears. Uh, she says, I realize that I want to bring this conversation to people because I needed people to bring it to me. So she starts talking about her own experience being in a particular religious system. And she said, I needed people to bring this to me. Um, that's why I want to bring it to others. I want to bring this to people because I needed people to bring this to me. 
Uh, that's why that's why having this conversation. That's why we decided to do this rather than scrap this series. Um, because if if even just a really basic, just shallow, open ended conversation can open a door and crack a window where somebody can breathe the fresh air of their own autonomy, even for a moment, uh, then it's going to be worth it. Oh, let's see here. Adam says, when we have endured trauma, we often don't have the ego strength to set out on our own adventure. And, excuse me, to set out on our own adventure towards God so that we venture away from him. We often, we, when we have endured trauma, we often don't have the ego strength. Like when you've endured trauma and you need to get out, you often don't have the strength within yourself on your own to just set out towards healing um, and and to get away from this abusive, you you've been depleted, and that's why so often we find ourselves in a really tricky situation. Um, Rachel says she she says I, I can remember this feeling. She says I I felt like, and then she quotes herself thinking back. She says I could probably do without much of this community, but I don't want to lose Jesus. Like her identity with Jesus, her identity as a follower of Jesus was so tied up. In the community of people, she's like, I, this community is kind of weird and wacky, and I could probably do without it. The problem is, it's my, it's the only way I know how to identify with who Jesus is. And there's so many parallels we could draw between like abusive relationships, like physically abusive relationships, like the the abusive husband that's beating the wife, and why does she stay in there, and codependence, and what? How do those things work together? It's the same idea of this is this is all I know about life. This is all that I know about Jesus. This is all I know about relationships. How could I ever step away from this? Because then I'll be lost. I'll be completely lost without any belonging, without any identity, without any sense of true north. This is where we get stuck. And spiritual abuse leverages that. It sees it and it leverages it. So at some point, Adam says, uh, Rachel, tell us about what are some symptoms? What are, what are some symptoms of spiritual abuse? Like if you were, if you were suffering from spiritual abuse and if we're saying that you don't really see it, like you often don't, you often can't see it when you're in it. If you, if you did have enough perspective, if you had just enough ability to look around, what would be some, some indicators, some symptoms that you were in a spiritually abusive situation? And she offers a small little list. She says, uh, ask this question. Was there any room for questioning? Obviously, it's a big, it's a big uh, value for us here at Baymont. Yes, Brent? Yeah, pretty much our number one priority. <laughs> it's, it's one of our four pillars, the idea of wrestling. Is there any room for wrestling? Is there any room for questioning? Is there any room for asking questions? Because if you can't question, if you can't question the leader, if you can't question the, the, the institution, if you can't question the body, if you can't question the theology, if you can't question... That what's going on there? You can't ask any questions. You can't. Uh, part of what we always encourage on that Slack workspace we always are talking about is this is a place to ask the questions. This is a place to disagree. This is a place to voice your own experiences. This is a because we cannot be a place where they're like, well, this is the answer. This is what we're teaching. No, no, no. We're just teaching ourselves how to think. But we have to have places where we can ask all the questions in the world. No question. Um, there has to be spaces where no question is off limits. And just to make it explicitly clear, that includes us. Question us. Please. <laughs> Please. Question, question everything. 
It's all on the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's part of the reason why we draw some boundaries at places. People write emails wanting us to do this, wanting us to do that, want me to answer this question, want me to answer that question. And that's just simply not my role. It's simply not my role. We do not want to be using a podcast platform. There are so many things we need to not be doing um, because that's just not what we're in the business of. We're in the business of equipping a better version of ourselves and a better version of the church and a better version of the theological story. So yes, please apply all of this stuff times a hundred to everything that we do, because I know I've had my tendencies. I'm sure that there are latent, um, whatever, whatever those things are, temptations that are still alive in me. And the only way that I'm held accountable is to surround myself by more people, to open myself up to people being able to to say yes, to say no, to disagree, to ask questions, to lead their own discussion groups. Please, 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 please. Uh, let's see here. What else? Um, and this is important, Brent, because somebody actually brought that up on Slack not long ago. Uh, they had family members that were concerned that what they were listening to with Bema and they're like, it sounds like a cult. Um, and so there was a conversation that was had about like, what is, what is a cult? Like, what is that? Um, and what is this thing that we're doing? And are, are we trying to communicate the answers to people? Or are we inviting people into something, uh, something where they think for themselves, have their own autonomy, their own personhood, their own humanity, their own fellowship, their own faith expression? Uh, let's see here. She says, another symptom of spiritual abuse, it perpetuates self-doubt. If the system, if the community, if the relationship you are in keeps like perpetuating, fostering, cultivating self-doubt, oh, you can't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself. No, no, no. Don't trust yourself. That's an indication you're in a spiritually abusive situation. Uh, was there room? Here's another question. Was there room for relationships with people that are different than them? Can you have fellowship with other Christians that see the world differently than you? Can you date and marry and court people outside of your particular sphere of influence? And I know that gets close to a lot of our listeners. We have folks and fellowships where you have to date and you have to marry and you have to pursue relationships and you can't have any deep, meaningful relationships with anybody who's not truly a part of this one group. That, that is a recipe for very, very dangerous, destructive things and situations. So I'm just going to say that out loud. I'm going to say the quiet part out loud. Okay, let's see here. Is, is the God you serve a fragile, punitive God, if you're in a system where the God that you serve is, he could just snap at any moment. Like this God could just like lose it and just start wheeling and dealing punishment faster than you can say, forgive me. That you might be in a a spiritually abusive situation. Um, And and it may not be stated directly, but if the culture is built to function only to facilitate those realities, only to facilitate one group of people, one demographic, one reality. Only if you say yes to this will this system and this community work for you because otherwise it will not work for you. There's a lot of illustrations I have of this, but I think I might get in trouble if I use them, so I'm just going to leave them to myself. But if uh, if the culture is only built to function for your group of people, that, that it, it's, it, may be, it may be a symptom that it's being leveraged uh, against people that are not a part of that group of people. So let's see here. Closing notes. There's no spiritual abuse without spiritually abusive leaders. 
Spiritual abuse does not exist in a vacuum. It's not a thing. It's the result of people behaving badly. So there is no such thing as spiritual abuse without spiritually abusive leaders. It's about power. There's always power dynamics involved, spiritual power. Rachel says you cannot question. Yeah, uh, spiritual abuse thrives when you cannot question the leaders. You get named bad or dirty or dangerous. If you start asking questions and you're now a threat to the larger uh, and they close the episode kind of talking about scapegoating, um, which uh, part of what you learn, uh, there's a whole conversation out there about spiral dynamics. I wish we could find some good links. I would link stuff, but everybody's going to get upset. Like I could I could link the liturgist uh, conversation about spiral dynamics, but people get mad about the liturgist. I could link Rob Bell's podcast, but everybody write me emails about Rob Bell. Um there's some great blog posts out there, but they use the F word. So, I mean, I, there's some really helpful resources out there, Brent. So you, you can go ahead and pick and choose and I'll, I'll, I'll direct all the emails to you. <laughs> I'll link the Wikipedia page and people can take it from there. Okay, great. Um, but spiral dynamics is really interesting to, to study, but oftentimes spiritual abuse happens on some of the lower levels of spiral dynamics because it's all about your tribal identity. And, and in order to preserve that tribal identity, you're scapegoating all other people groups. So you're scapegoating those that ask questions. You scapegoat the doubters. You scapegoat the backsliders. You sca- Rather than seeing them as human beings, rather than, than knowing what it means to love your friends and love your neighbors and love even your enemies, you, you find all these other groups to scapegoat so that you're only the people on the inside, only the people a part of our group see this clearly. We're the only ones that have... And preserve this. And I know uh, I'll, I'll just transition to a closing here, Brent. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that before I transition to a closing? Uh, no, go ahead. All right. Um, I, I know that as we get close, like some of this stuff, especially towards the end of our conversation here today, some of the stuff start. It, it was kind of like ethereal, kind of abstract, like, okay. And then it started to get a little bit for some of us. I know uh, some of these uh, illustrations and examples were like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, that's starting to sound like my Tuesday. Um, that's starting to sound like my staff meeting. Um, I know, I know. And again, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Don't get defensive. This is okay. Uh, and, and here's my closing. I, I wrote this out. Here's my closing notes here. Some of us, these come from me. This isn't Rachel or Adam. This is Marty. Some of us, as we listen to this series, some of us, as we engage this topic and wrestle through this, some of us will grow. And we will humble ourselves, and we will confess, and we will repent, truly repent and change, like we talked about last episode. Some of us, some of us, we are spiritual leaders, and we are hearing this, and we know that we're a part of, we, we take part in this. This is a part of what we do, and we're going to change. And I know it's scary, and you don't know how to, you would never even know how to do your job without this. But trust me, if you can't do your job without spiritual abusive practices, then you sh- we should not be doing our jobs. So let's find new ways. I know it's scary. I know we have to learn some new tools. I know we kind of have to go, it feels like we're going back three steps, two steps forward, three steps back, but uh, it's worth it if we're going to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly. Uh, some of us will grow and humble ourselves and confess and repent and change. That's what some of us need to do. Some of us hearing my voice, that's what we need to do. I will put myself in that category. That's the journey that hopefully I've been on for a while and I know it's the journey I need to continue. I need to continue. I, I am too used to these tools of power. And um, some of us will need to leave in order to heal. Um, I hope that's not everybody, but there are some people that will need to leave a situation to heal. 
And I know that will upset every pastor around, and I know that that will upset, but that is what some of us will have to do. Some of us will have to leave, um, just like the abusive, the abused wife has to leave the husband. Uh, some of us will have to leave to heal. Some of us will need to stay in order to help change the destructive systems. If there's still something, you know, sometimes there's not, sometimes, sometimes something is so destructive, so it's beyond that point of like trying to redeem and steer and change. But sometimes there's just some things that need to be repented of, um, some things that need to be removed and, uh, and, and we can build back. We can, we can do something. We can, we can build something that's better, but uh, if there is something re- that's still, if there's something redemptive to be done, some of us will need to stay. It's part of why I stay in the church. I, I don't think the church is too far gone. A lot of people disagree with me. A lot of people think the evangelical church is way too far gone. It's beyond redemption. I I don't I, I don't necessarily see it that way. Um, and so I stay because I think if we have enough of these conversations and continue to grow and can you continue to develop and continue to change what we what we have at the end of that process will be so much better than anything else that we had before because the process will have been worth it. So we keep having the conversations and I hope that you join me in continuing to reflect, to be curious, to be empathetic and to keep growing. Those are my thoughts for today, Brent. We got a couple more episodes left in the series. Oh man. Okay. It's good. It's good to talk about this. Um, I'm enjoying it. I'm learning a lot and uh, hopefully we're all learning a lot. So yeah. Do you want to, do you want to like preview what we're going to talk about in our next episode? Uh, not necessarily. There's, there's so much that we're not going to be able to say in these four episodes, just so you know, like don't build it up too much. Cause we're only, we're just going to scratch the surface and open the door and say, Hey, are we talking about this? Are we talking about this? I hope we're talking about this. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're our not, next episode we're not hurtling towards a grand conclusion. You're saying, yeah, we're not going to like make a bunch of thundering. Uh, this is just like opening the door and encouraging us to think. That's all. That's all we're doing. Next episode, I'm going to have L. Grover Fricks join me, and we're going to talk about the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast and what we've learned from it, and how to think critically about it because it's not all just beautiful, perfect goodness. Like there's a lot of things we need to be really thinking critically about, both what it suggests, but we also need to be thinking critically about what it's saying and how it's saying it. And uh, but all of that will be a helpful conversation, helping us think critically and become better uh, about this evangelical culture that we've built that can be so ripe for spiritual abuse. So that's where we're going next episode. And yeah, can't wait to see you then. The wrestling continues. Indeed. All right. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.